James Gearing spent 14 years as a firefighter paramedic working on both the west and east coasts of America. He began to see the impact of service on his brothers and sisters, losing countless first responders to a host of work-related physical and mental health issues. The unending funerals sent him down a new path. So in 2016, he started a podcast called Behind the Shield. That podcast has since been downloaded 5 million times internationally. He's also gone on to write his first book, One More Light, Life, Death and Humanity. This has received incredible reviews and he's now in the process of writing a second book, his first fiction. James is also a grateful recipient of the unconditional love from his German Shepherd Ember. James Gearing, it's an absolute honor to have you here on the Modern Warrior podcast. I am extremely inspired by the work you've done, the work you continue to do. You have an incredible background, which drew me in and inspired me to reach out to you because I knew you'd be a man of inspiration for the listeners of this podcast today. It's going to be loaded with value. And I know that you've you've been on several different chapters in your life. You have accomplished so much. Right now, you are a firefighter and you've also written a book called One More Light. And it's written from the perspective of a frontline worker or a frontline firefighter. And again, a completely ins inspirational listen, it, uh, listen to the audio. And the first question that sort of came to my mind when I was reading about your story and reading about your, your life today is the fire. As a firefighter, you need to step into the fire from a physical perspective to help someone out to potentially save a life and i got thinking about a time where you were you were perhaps yourself stuck in the fire and i wondered how you began to extinguish those flames in order to move forward in your own life there's two parts or chapters in my life that really um resonate one was very acute and obvious and another one i'll tell you about was a lot more um kind of death by a thousand cuts but the first one i was a firefighter in the orlando area orange county um and uh was going through paramedic school as well um so we do 24-hour shifts in america to so do 24 straight shifts you know usually you're not even sleeping then you go back for 20 for 48 and you come back and do it again and again and again and again um, but I would discovered infidelity in my marriage. So then I was going through a divorce, um, single father of that. At that point, my little boy was three, I think. Um, then I was going through paramedic school at the same time. So that meant um, you come off shift after you're 24, go straight to a community college, do another nine hours in the classroom, go to bed. Well, you obviously be a father, go to bed, wake up 
get your son to preschool, then go and do a clinical in a hospital or ride with another fire department, come home, be a dad, go to sleep, go back to the fire station, rinse and repeat for a year. So as far as external pressures and traumas and stress and heartbreak, that was, uh, that was rough. That was the hardest year of my life. Um, I look back, I don't even know how I made it through, to be honest. Not so much from a self-harm point of view, but how I managed to juggle the parenting side and all that stuff as well. But back then, it was the same as, as we'll talk about with the most recent one. It was taking a step back and, and evaluating what are the things that always work. Doesn't mean it's going to work overnight, but what are the things that help rather than hinder? And so it was, you know, my exercise, my tribe. So I had um, a CrossFit gym that I would go to and I'd immerse myself in the class. Um, I did a, a like a jujitsu Muay Thai class as well. So it was a different gym. So I'd make sure I try and get to them, even if it was once a month, just try and be around those people. Um, I leaned heavily into yoga and meditation as well. Um, and then uh, I also had a dog. I got myself a, a German shepherd who she was a godsend as well. So um, this we're talking about like a, a year or two into this. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's really it's the things that probably everyone on your show has, has said. I never got to a very dark place. So I never sat there, you know, with the bottle of whiskey and the pistol like a lot of people have had on my show did. But that doesn't mean that you can't be absolute rock bottom you know, brutally depressed and feeling alone. Because when you go through a divorce, when you live in America and you're from England, no one's around you, like your family. And then I just left my my previous fire department in California. So I've moved back to the East Coast. So all my really good friends were 2,500 miles away as well. So anyone that's out there that's felt brutally alone and is suffering, I mean, that's, you know, I empathize completely. So that was the acute one. But then what was interesting, only two years ago now, I went back um, and it was coming out of, of the pandemic. And for me personally, someone who you know is a paramedic, who has an exercise physiology degree, who's been an athlete, who's been a coach, as we entered, there was no real discussion on let's make people healthier. And it was absolutely maddening. And the whole thing was either you're pro-vax or anti-vax or mask or you know you name it or it's Chinese conspiracy. Um, and so I found that very emotionally exhausting because I was trying to put good information out the whole time that would make people healthier regardless of a virus. You know, when we come out as we have now, you know, we should have been so much healthier after two years of a captive audience. So you had that. I couldn't travel to see my family. Um, when I did travel, it cost me $800 just in tests alone to uh, travel to, to London and come back. Got the the vaccines. I was going to go see my grandmother, who's 104. Um, amazing woman. So all these compounding things, trying to save this extra money, preloading podcasts before. When I got to Portugal to visit my mom, I found myself in a deep, deep, deep depression. When people say that they just felt like everything was gray, they have the most like oasis, beautiful oasis of a garden. Everything looked gray to me. I just, you know, and then that feeling of crawling under your skin. Um, I, I got it. I'm like, oh, this is what that is. This is horrible. So same thing again, swimming, yoga, meditation, abstinence from alcohol, and just being diligent with it and trusting it because it's not overnight. Um, probably uh, a month later is when I started going, okay, I think I'm, I'm out of this now. But uh, those are two. And then right before that as well, even physiologically, 
without being too gross, I was on my way to a, a fitness competition and um, literally had to run into a bathroom in a, in, a, in a fast food restaurant and basically all but didn't make it because again, physiologically, everything had just shut down and I literally had no control of my bowels. So psychologically and physiologically, and, uh, you know, we were talking before we hit record, you know, it's important to, to talk about, you know, the, the worst parts and all the, all the, sh the shitty parts of it, you know, no pun intended. So yeah, it was a complete physical and mental, you know, breakdown, shutdown. Um, but again, having the tools, knowing, okay, I know this works was an absolute superpower. It's, uh, it was horrible and it took weeks to, to pull myself out that funk, but it worked. You just had to trust it. From someone from the outside looking in would have seen a completely different man, wouldn't they? They'd seen this uh, strong, assertive, confident, inspirational figure who was thriving in life, but deep down inside you were breaking down, you had broken down, and deep down inside there was a lot of pain. And over that process of the depression and your breakdown, were you able to identify the source of your pain and anguish? I think for me, it's, we, we, we got to remember there's cumulative trauma too. So absolutely, you know, when I look at my childhood, for example, um, we were almost killed in a house fire when I was four. My, my sister literally got us out of this, this house before it burnt to the ground, um, my grandparents' house. And we had another near-death experience where a wall near um, Cheddar Gorge, if anyone from Britain's listening, um, came collapsing down, crushed every car in the car park right when we were driving away. Um, so, yeah, we had some of those parents' divorce. But then 14 years in the fire service, you know, we, we do fire and we're paramedics. We're both. So you, you see a huge amount. So all those are little paper cuts, you know, death by a thousand cuts. But then there's the emotional side, there's the marriage and a divorce and then trying to co-parent, especially if it's not an amicable divorce. Um, and then you have even, you know, the the organizational stressors, you know, you have this thing sweep through the planet that is killing people who are predominantly already ill. And then nothing gets done about making people better, like fitter you know, working on the mental health crisis and the obesity epidemic and, you know, the addiction um, crisis I mean, all these things that are we see kill people before a virus shows up. So now you just, you know, it's that stress of why is no one listening, you know, to the common sense middle ground, which is, yes, it's a real virus. And yes, the healthier you are, the more chance there is of, of overcoming this, which, you know, still carries on to this day in 2023 that same message is there and then we're going to get another one that's going to have a different name and it's going to do the same thing again so i think it was all those things and then being told that you can't be with your family and some of my family initially were you know dragged one one of two ways when it came to to what the news was telling them and then that was you know trying to trying to navigate again the middle ground where you didn't end up being one of these families that was torn apart but at the same time just stay in the ground knowing that you come from a medical background a wellness background like you know this this is what makes sense this just doesn't make sense so it's all these little things which is why the mental health conversation is is nuanced you know you can't say oh a soldier has ptsd because he was in fallujah well he might have been molested when he was six and that might be the nucleus you know it might have been 
he was adopted or was a middle child and felt unloved, you know, I mean, all these other areas that, that factor in too. So I don't think that my early life was an acute trauma, but it's still in there. It's still, you know, it's still a, a fracture in the foundation, um, which is, is fine as long as you know where it is, but you've just got to be aware of that cumulative thing. That's the one that sneaks up on people when they're, they're deep in it and they don't realize that they were even falling in the first place. Isn't it ironic how one of your first childhood memories is you being pulled out of a, a burning house? <laughs> Absolutely. I didn't, I forgot about it. I wrote my book and when I was writing it, I was like, oh yeah, like totally, I never put two and two together. And that was, I wrote my book after I transitioned out of the fire service. So um, that was 14 years of doing the job and never even crossed my mind. So that's, uh, yeah. that's how deeply those things can get locked down there. Do you believe that you... It was something that you greatly feared, so it almost fueled you to to go towards a an occupation like that. That ultimately you're stepping back into the fire of the burning. No, house. I think it was the opposite, and it's bizarre. You know, either you develop this fear, or and I don't get me wrong, I was a very anxious child. I had night terrors. I was a bedwetter till I was twelve or something like way old. Um, so it had an impact, no question but I love fire. Like we'd love building fires out in the farm. We'd have a log fire in the house. And when I became, and when I went to the fire service, I never ever was scared going into a fire. Now there was times like moments where I got disoriented and I'm like, Oh shit, this isn't good. I don't know where I am at this moment, but was never any fear of actually that medium, the medium of fire just didn't. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I think that overall anxiety definitely came from it. There's, yeah, there's no question about that. But conversely, it ultimately drove me into that profession. And to this day, I mean, if I walk outside and smell fire, you know, like a you know a log fire or something, I love that smell. This is you know, you could have a cologne with just you know structure fire, and I'd wear it. <laughs> <laughs> could be on something there, yeah. <laughs> next, your next uh, next venture. Um, yeah, so. What was the tipping point for you and all that? And what was the next step once you fell off the proverbial edge of the cliff? I mean, the, the, the first time, the one where I was in paramedic school, it was just, you know, one foot at a time. You know, I didn't have a chance to even stop really because um, one of the, the lecturers of the paramedic school said at the very beginning, Medic school is like a, a slow moving train. If you keep walking, you're fine. But if you stop to tie your shoelace, then you're screwed. And that was kind of how it was. The first time I, I had a three-year-old that needed me to the point where I even changed fire departments because my department kept saying they, get, they would get short staff and say, you have to stay for another 24. I'm like, I can't. I'm a single dad. You know what I mean? So I ended up leaving that department, going to a different one that had more time off and didn't have that understaffing problem. Um, so I'm constantly focused on him. He's already been through enough. He's experienced a divorce. He's now having to bounce around between two houses, which, you know, no child should, but they do all the time. Um, so my focus came, became him. And then simultaneously making sure my body was healthy, my mind was healthy, because those all tie in. If I'm going to be a kind, understanding patient dad, I can't be on edge and angry and, you know, so I would use 
use my tools to make sure that I was the father he needed to be that reflected the child that I was wanting him to be, which was, you know, strong, kind, compassionate. So that was really the first time, you know, I, it was, it was a low, but it was a different kind of low. The second time now my son is, uh, cause he was with me and he was about 14 by that point. So he's, you know, young man pretty much. So it was a different dynamic then. Now, then I just felt like it was just a complete burnout as they say, that's what it was. So then it was just more a case of him being independent, just communicating with him. Like, this is what I'm feeling right now. It's, it's, bizarre i've never had it before please be patient with me i'm probably not going to seem like i'm very much fun at the moment and then doing that and then doing the work you know going to the gym doing the meditation all these things and then him seeing me do that like i'm gonna get myself back out you know so i think that that was it two like i said two very different scenarios but the age of my son definitely made a difference sounds like he's been someone that you wanted to inspire i'm very careful with my words here because i was going to say someone that inspired you but i believe you wanted to become the inspiration for him more so it's it's a two-way two-way street 100 percent. you know when there's times where i've just been so humbled by watching his kindness or patience or you know whatever it is and i'm absolutely learning from him and inspired by him and now he's a he's a track runner and he's out there you know murdering himself on this one mile one mile race and i've got so so much admiration for him and he inspires me to to get out there and be a better athlete myself but then conversely yeah you know as a parent if i sat in the lazy boy eating chips and saying yo you need to you know need to be a better football player you know why'd you miss that goal it's empty words you know if you're gonna ask your children to elevate themselves you yourself have to walk the walk doesn't mean you have to do everything that they do but you have to epitomize you know wanting to grow mentally wanting to grow physically experiencing some suffering um you know being a kind person when you're out on the streets you know it's all very well sharing memes about kindness and then driving like an asshole you know, so you kind of got to walk the walk. And then you had this relationship that you had to move beyond as well. Infidelity in the relationship, which was, I imagine, extremely painful for you at the time. How did you manage to, to move past that and to now be in a, a very happy, I'd imagine, a happier relationship today? Yeah, firstly, absolutely. I met my soulmate the second time and I have no, no regrets. I was in love with my first wife when I met her. We had a beautiful little boy who was the center of my universe. So I heard, um, God, what's her name? Dr. Shafali. She is a psychologist, relationship guru. Um, I think she's English, but um, she was talking about the shame and guilt in relationships. And I remember talking about this even when I was younger because I would date someone and if it wasn't working, I'd just end it. You know, I had friends that called me like callous and hurtful to these girls. And I'm like, yeah, but you're cheating on your girlfriend. I'm just being honest and saying, look, I don't feel the same way. So therefore, let me break it off so you can find the person who is right for you. Um, so I always looked at it as uh, food. Like some relationships are meant to be forever. You know, you meet you meet them in, in secondary school and then you die holding hands. That's honey, you know. Some are a tuna sandwich from a petrol station. You know, they're, they're not supposed to be there for very long. So 
with the marriage, the marriage itself I saw had kind of ground to a halt. So the infidelity was absolutely a massive shock. And obviously the lack of any care and uh, desire to make it work from, from my ex, you know, that was, was crushing as well. But I wasn't super surprised when I found that out because it explained, you know, the attitude change. But again, I poured myself into my son. You know, now this is my my everything. But I will say some of the comedy uh, films are out there and there's like a dating montage of all the worst dates. You know, it's like the woman with the unibrow and, you know, the power lifter and all these things. Dating when you're in your late 30s, when you didn't choose to suddenly be single and ha not really having a social network. It was quite an eye opener. And I'm not saying that I'm they probably had the same experience to me. I was probably a nightmare to some of them. But yeah, not not fun going into it. So I, I mean, I have so much sympathy and empathy for people that find themselves middle Asia beyond that are, you know, having to get into that again. But it was actually match.com that I found my wife. Um, and she lived down the road. I mean, we never crossed paths and we lived in the same town for years and uh, literally went on a first date with her and saw it every day. I wasn't at the fire station from then on inwards. So that's the the cool story of hope is, you know, people kind of get jaded after relationships. But if you take some time to work on yourself and make sure you refine who you are, because, I mean, if you're with someone for a long time, sometimes, you know, that two becomes one. We kind of blend and we lose the person who our partner was attracted to in the first place. So refinding you and then giving love a second chance, you know what I mean? Being open to it again. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely worth it. And I've been with my wife now for 11 years. Congratulations, man. And that's a, a testament to the work you've done because I know how difficult it can be to go back into a relationship when you've been so greatly hurt in the previous one you know being cheated on is is something that's severely painful for for a man and it comes with uh, a lot of uh, feelings of insecurity and inadequacy and the i'm not a good i'm not good enough why did you have to, have to leave me why did you have to find someone else and you can get lost in that narrative and i speak about this because i, I speak to men on a regular basis who are going through separations and going through divorces and struggling to find someone new but as you rightly put it you need to find yourself first you need to heal your own wounds first or else it will transfer on to the next woman and in the next relationship and the same shit storm will occur again and is there anything that you would add there seeing as you've experienced this firsthand and you've come out on top of it i mean honestly the biggest takeaway and i was like this even when i was little allow yourself to be um what's the right word i'm blanking on my vocabulary's left me now but um you're allowed to be loved not even so much vulnerable um you know almost like you have permission to be loved but that's not the word i was looking for but um you know when when you have this kind of love at first sight fairy tale story like it's out there there's in this country I'm sitting in now, there's 330 million people. Now, some are very young, some are very old, but there's a lot in the middle that are adults. You're someone that you're going to have an amazing relationship is, you know, near you somewhere. They really are. But obviously, you know, that that trauma element, you've got to you know, love yourself first. And it sounds very cliche, but it's true. You know, if you if you look in the mirror and you're proud of who you are, 
you know, and you can't be derailed by other people's opinions. Like, you know, you, 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 you look in the mirror and you go, yeah, this, this is, this is who I am and this is who I want to be. Then I think you become more attractive and you become more open then. But as again, we were talking before I hit record, before you hit record this time, it's a podcast that's saying that, um, there's a multi-generational trauma element. Each one of us, when we're very small, are already carrying certain bags that have been passed on from, you know, parents and, you know, grandparents and, and further on. So it is a, a great opportunity to, to do a kind of, you know, control alt delete on who you are, you know, and, and address some things. I mean, there's so many great tools out there from canine therapy to ayahuasca to you name it. I mean, that you can really work on yourself. I mean, a lot of people get themselves back in shape when they get single, which is excellent because there's no downside to that at all. But then just believing, believing in love, you know, like it, I adore my marriage and there's times where we butt heads and, you know, argue for a, a moment, but I feel, you know, loved by her. I feel like I'm attracted, attractive to her, you know, and vice versa. So I think it's just, you know, having faith, you know, if you've been hurt and it didn't work out, then it was, you know, somewhere between a tuna sandwich and honey and it didn't quite make it. So, you know, find the next one. How did you do that? What I mean, you talk about some of the strategies you've used, but it seems to have been a lot of the physical aspects, getting yourself into shape, you know, working on yourself from a, you know, a physical standpoint. What were some of the tools or strategies you put in place to help heal your emotional wounds and scars? When I look back, if I'm being completely honest, start a podcast because where I, where I was working, the last fire department I worked for was, was awful. It was complacent. It was, there was no camaraderie at all. And that's the one I'd moved to because their, their, you know, working hours were conducive to me being a single dad. But, um, it was, I mean, organizational stress and betrayal. That was, that was it. That was piled on there. And it was so heartbreaking and disappointing. And so there was a kind of strange, completely unconscious metamorphosis where I wanted to find a podcast where first responders were talking about mental health and wellness and, you know, but the, 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 the best people in the world talking about it, you know what I mean? But in my community and it didn't exist. So that was that one of those, well, if you can't find it, there's your sign to do it yourself. And so when I started that and I was having conversations like this, you know, initially once a week, twice a week, and now it's three times a week, that's in it. It's the most basal form of therapy. If you look at, you know, a tribe, whether it's Inuits or, aboriginals or whatever there's a huge amount of storytelling a huge amount of sitting around and you know whether they're eating whether they're you know taking whatever um pills or potions or alcohol or whatever their social lubricant is for that tribe you know when they come back from from war you know when they come back from a hunt it's storytelling 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 so i really think that this was a big thing and then writing for me as well i did blogs at first and then ended up writing the book and very cathartic as well because then when you start talking to fellow first responders and they're sharing their struggles and you, you see commonalities and you hear how they got out of it. And then you talk to strength and conditioning coaches and jujitsu guys and, you know, you name it, this, this uh, network gets bigger and bigger and your understanding of the toolbox that you can use to 
to fix yourself physically and when I say fix it's the wrong word to overcome trauma and then turn it into a strength because that's the thing post-traumatic growth is where the, the conversation really needs to be if you truly are able to process trauma in a healthy way whatever it looks like it could be being at the Grenfell fire or you know being in the troubles um, or a divorce you know a, a issue with one of your children if you can process that that becomes resilience that becomes strength then you are better than you were before so um yeah so by by listening to all these stories i feel like that was almost like a kind of unofficial therapy form and it really did help you know just hear so many you got to be careful you hear a lot of you know powerful sad stories it's almost like green mile if you take too much on it's going to start hurting you so you got to be able to offload as well but um yeah i mean i think there's nothing better than conversation you know this is why soldiers and firefighters and police officers in in cohesive units will do that they'll they'll talk um so that was it for me it wasn't it wasn't really like diligent meditation practices or ice baths or anything it was it was yeah just community and conversation was the big thing yeah community is so important it's a missing link in today's society i believe there's a massive uh, disconnect there and a lot of lonely men because of it and the loneliness in itself is extremely dangerous but i just wanted to bring it back there to the the first responders and what's it like as a first responder and you, you talk about post-traumatic stress and when we talk about post-traumatic stress we're often we often believe that it's something deeper in our in our background in our childhood in our earlier life but for a first responder is the post-traumatic stress process almost like an ongoing thing because you are putting yourself into such stressful situations with every fire with every accident for every instant that you attend to or do you somewhat become immune to that over time that's a good question and we don't become immune but we become numb to it and i'll give you a, i mean if we'd had this conversation when we were supposed to i wouldn't be able to tell you the story but now i can so i spent 14 years very very busy departments um you know saw a lot of horrible stuff um but I was wearing a uniform and I was paid to see that horrible stuff. And I was with a crew of men and women that were highly trained that also saw that horrible stuff. So we would ad address the issue, whatever, you know, we would do whatever we could physically do more often than not, they wouldn't make it anyway, but you gave them every possible chance. Um, you know, it was an orchestra of people that were, were doing their, you know, their part. And then we would clear up our gear and again, talk in, in the ambulance, in the fire engine, whatever we were in that day, and then get to the station. Maybe we'll talk some more. But when I flew to the UK, when we were supposed to do our interview, I was literally on the tarmac in London on the plane, getting ready to taxi and go take off. And someone had a heart attack, a cardiac arrest about 12 rows behind me, ended up you know, working the code. I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, I was the only one that had an emergency back emergency medicine background on the whole plane. There was a nurse who, who helped, but you know, obviously a lot of nurses don't work in emergencies. I don't think she was an emergency background. So you're kind of trying to orchestrate everything, doing the compressions and then asking the, the cabin crew who were amazing. They 
were only able to access certain equipment at a time. They had to get permission for each one, which which kind of hindered things a bit. But you know, we did everything we could. The, the London firefighters and paramedics showed up, and we ended up moving him to the galley. And then I stayed with them, working him for another few minutes until there were just so many people, and it was time to hand off compressions. And I'm like, all right, I'm gonna gonna step out your way so you can carry on working. But unlike the crew that I work with, and you know, my vehicle, my fire station, I'm on a plane. So I just go to the plane bathroom, wash the blood off my hands, and then go and sit down. And it shook me for a couple of days. It shook the cabin crew, and, and a couple of them went home. And I always say this, and kudos for them going, I don't think I can handle this today. And I think that's amazing. And then kudos to the ones that stayed because they cleaned everything up and then served a plane full of passengers for 11 hours, which I think is so admirable. And I ended up talking with a few of them which again, that was a shared experience. So now I had this this bond with these these people at the uh, on the plane. But a few days after I got back, I was like trying to figure everything out. Like, what is it that I'm feeling? And I realized, and I did a little video about it on on Instagram. I'm feeling how you're supposed to feel when a human being dies in your arms. But I didn't have that when I was in uniform because the moment I cleaned up all my gear, and we radio dispatch, then we're off to the next one. It might be an emergency. It might be a tummy ache or a rolled ankle, but we still have to go to it. And so you just get on with it, you know, whereas I had 11 hours on a plane to think about what I just done, you know, 12 seats back. So to answer your question with a story, we're not immune to it, but we absolutely become numb to it. But it's still having that effect. Now, you know, a couple of days later, I was fine again. I again leaned into the very things that we talked about before exercise, jujitsu, meditation, and it worked and it was fantastic. But it really made me realize how much trauma we do absorb. Doesn't mean it's PTSD, but it's absolutely bucket loads of you know, post-traumatic stress. And with a strong foundation and good coping mechanisms, you can get through a whole career and, and be relatively okay. But if there's a fracture in your foundation, you know, if there's childhood trauma unaddressed or even in the station, like the last one I worked for, if there's organizational betrayal and you're out there saving lives and getting written up for, you know, not emptying a trash can or whatever it was, I'm just making something up, but those are all compounding elements too. So, and then sleep deprivation, which very people don't understand, but in 24 hours, you know, we'll be, sometimes we'll actually get some sleep, but it's not real sleep because you're waiting for the alarm to go off at any moment. Um, and so that, that's a huge kind of under-discussed element of uh, mental health, whether it's actually having to stay up if you're a shift worker or if you are leaning into something like alcohol, which disrupts your sleep or taking some sort of sleep medicine, which isn't sleep medicine, it's unconscious medicine. You know, these are all things that then become a vicious circle as well. So being very diligent with your sleep is another massive, massive you know, focus and tool. Has there been one experience there from the time you've been in uniform that you found difficult to numb yourself from, if that's the right term, or that still lingers there somewhat? There's a couple of incidents I wrote about in the book. One was just <laughs> was my last day in Orange County. And this wasn't why I, people thought this is why I retired, but it wasn't. I, the way it works is we have what's called a rescue, which is an ambulance 
and it's got all the fire stuff on it. So we respond to the fire and we have our gear, we have our tools, we have our air packs, but the rest of the vehicle is set up like an ambulance. Um, and so as a, as a firefighter paramedic in that department, you're supposed to rotate. You do some time on there, then some time on the fire engine, the actual engine, and you just kind of rotate. And then I was, I was what they call ride up. So I could actually act as an engineer, drive the engine, pump and everything. And I'd been waiting months to finally get back on there. They put me on and then we went to a car, first cardiac arrest, horrible cardiac arrest. And I've talked about this in the video. In actual cardiac arrest, when someone's heart, you know, has arrested, is in that that rhythm. I never got a single, never saved a single person in 14 years. And that guy on the, the plane added yet another body to that body count. Saved lots of people, what they call pre-code, you know, before, whether it was overdoses or, you know, cardiac arrhythmias, whatever it was. And, and we saved their lives. So lots of lives saved. But the ones you see on television, you know, they shock them and then they wake up and then they give them a hug, like zero for James Gearing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that was yet another one of those. I get back to the station and they say, oh, not only we need you to go back on, on the rescue on the ambulance. And by the way, you're probably going to get forced to stay yet another shift. And so I, by this point I tested for another department. I'm, you know what? This is my last shift. I'm done. Cause I got to go home to my son. So I handed my notice in after that call. Well, then middle of the day. Um, a homeless woman's been missing for a few days and I end up tracking through the woods and finding what's left of her. And then about 2 a.m., that same shift, uh, a dude came running out of a house fire, fully engulfed in flames. I don't know if he set the fire, if it was arson or suicide attempt, but he came out on fire and we ended up and he had passed away as well. Um, so that was one one shift, one day, but that actually wasn't that haunting. Um, and one of my friends that was the other medic on that fire, that that bothered him. But when I was in California a few years before that, we had an accident where a little, she was about three, was decapitated in a car crash that was caused by her mother. Um, and uh, I had a little boy that was about two at the time. You know what I mean? So that one, I remember just needing to take some deep breaths was still fine. Any sort of rescue needed, I would have been a thousand percent fine. And then even we were supposed to go back. They sent us away for a bit because there was nothing, you know, obviously she'd passed and um, someone else in the car passed as well, but there was no one to, to save. So we were supposed to go back and kind of cut her out of the car because she was entrapped. Um, and this is a beautiful human story. My captain, who was like the, the officer of the, of the fire truck, we were in a truck in that time he and the, the engineer both of them were close to retirement they ordered myself and my partner who uh, we only had like three years on the fire service by that we were very young and he told us you're not coming with us he said you're going to see enough horrible shit in your career you don't need to add this one to your memory so he actually compassionately empathetically ordered us to stay behind and they went and just you know freed up the body so the coroner could take it but yeah, so that that the latter one of those, and you'll hear this a lot with responders, when when the victim reminds them of a spouse or a child, um, that's usually the, the one. And it didn't haunt me. I've never had the nightmares or anything that's, you know, haunts a lot of my my fellow responders and service members. But I remember that one definitely hit a little bit harder. What do you feel separates you from those who can be 
extremely, not even extremely, but heavily impacted by such a scene or such such tr- traumatic accidents and instances. What do you believe you have instilled in yourself to be able to process that more efficiently and then be able to move on what the next challenge or the next task? Honestly, it's just whether you won the lottery or not. It's that simple. You know, when when I talked about some of the stuff early life, what was on the other side of the balance was I grew up on a farm in England. My dad was a veterinary surgeon. So I grew up healing animals and surgery and blood and guts. I, we had a family. I was one of five. So big kitchen table. And you know, every time we would eat, it would be around and making fun of each other and joking. And so for every bad thing, honestly, there was, you know, equal or above as many good things. You know, I didn't feel unsafe. You know, you touched on it with, with yourself. I didn't feel preyed upon or any of that stuff, you know, and then even the people that walked through the farm doors, I mean, literally there was a, a homeless gentleman, Edinburgh, that would camp out on like the end of our drive and that my mom and dad would bring him in and we'd give him bath and new clothes. And, and then we'd have members of the royal family. I and mean, my sister was really good friends with Camilla Parker Bowles' daughter, Laura, for, you know, when she was in junior school and she was a sweetheart. Both of them were, you know what I mean? So you also got to see, you got to see humanity, you know, there are good people and bad people. It doesn't matter what their bank balance is. You know, you just so there's so many things. That I was just so lucky. But when I look back and self-assess now, a lot of people, I think, that struggle in, you know, the military and the first responder professions or not in civilian life. If you unpack earlier life, the hierarchy of needs, the most basal elements of our personality, there's probably some some you know some cracks in that foundation so it's that no no one is you know just cut from a cloth that's going to be this fearless warrior or this you know stoic firefighter we're the sum of every single experience that we've had now if you've had childhood trauma and you've been able to again healthily navigate it it becomes a strength and it becomes resilience i think that's where i was lucky but had i you know had um a childhood of abuse and felt preyed upon or, you know, was a foster or adopted child and wondered why I wasn't good enough for my parents, you know, whatever it was, it doesn't have to be acute. Those I see are huge common denominators of why men and women struggle later in life. And you might point to a car crash or, you know, the, the decapitated child or Fallujah, but it might not be that. Of course, that's part of it. You know, it's a layer. But if we're just focusing on that and missing what happened when you were younger, um, I think that's where we miss a lot. You know what I mean? Is the whole person, not just for in my community, when we put on a uniform. I can relate. I, I completely understand where you're coming from. And I was in a car accident when I was 18. And for a long time, I thought that was it. I thought that was the, that thought, that, that was the problem. That was my trauma. There was nothing else before that. But what I've begun to understand is that that car accident exposed the belief that I had, that I had already towards myself. So when the car accident happened, I went instantly to, I hate myself. And that was the ultimate default for the next decade and a half of my life. I hate myself and I hate myself because of what I've done in this accident. It was, it was my fault. I hate myself for it. But 
that only exposed the belief that I had already within myself that I wasn't a good person, that I was a bad person. And as I had begun to process the trauma of the accident, I it opened up the the door to go a little bit deeper in terms of identifying where that core belief came from. And that's where the real healing began. And as I said, I can relate to that. It's whatever's happening today or whatever happens in your life going forward is merely provoking a pain that's already within that you haven't yet addressed is, is my belief. So yeah, I understand where you're coming from with that. Yeah. There's an analogy that I use in the book and it, it was in someone else's book. They just mentioned, I forget what it was like the perforating, perforating a bucket or something. And I'm like, well, when we talk about trauma, a lot of times we'll say, you know, your bucket is overflowing, your glass is overflowing, whatever it is, you know, it's too much trauma. But if you think about the addiction model, that doesn't work. You know, there's no way of kind of using that to explain addiction. So if you flip that analogy on its head, imagine if you have a bucket and it's supposed to be full. That's when you feel content at peace is when it when it's full. And then, you know, you have some traumas as you're young, maybe something, you know, acute, like, again, you know, some sort of sexual abuse or around addiction or domestic abuse, whatever it is. Those are those are large holes being punched in that bucket already. And now that fluid starts leaking out. Then over time, you know, your teacher belittled you in front of the class. It's a little hole, you know, little hole here. The girl rejected you, little hole. And now it starts seeping out more. As you get a little bit older and, you know, you start to really sense that you're losing this fluid, you scramble to fill it up. Now, some people might find all the right things, but a lot of people, they're like, well, you know what? Alcohol works, you know, cigarettes work, whatever it is. And you start filling it up and it fills up. But every time you do, it starts corroding a couple more holes because it's, it's a negative thing. And then you know, before you know it, there's this kind of um, vicious circle effect because now you're leaning into alcohol. Now maybe you lost your job or, you know, you start gambling and you lost a load of money or, you know, you, you, your marriage starts falling apart and now ho, 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 ho. And now you're just fighting to keep this damn bucket. But when you hit pause and you go through a rehab um, session, you know, you go, you go to, to counseling, you start meditation, you start swimming, diving, you get a dog, all these things. Every so every, you know, you begin to start covering some of these holes and you and then now you're filling it with this healthier and healthier stuff. And the desire to be filled starts slowing down as well, giving you the time to put the healthier stuff. And not all the holes will ever be filled. You know, there's always going to be some seeping a little bit and new ones will come. And now you're, you know, 60, you know, and you broke your hip or whatever it was, you know. But that's what I like about that model is realizing that when you choose the right um, healing modalities, you will start stemming those holes and the suffering will start slowing and slowing and slowing. But conversely, if you go for the quick fix, you know, the psych meds and the alcohol and the infidelity and the gambling and the social media use and the fast food, that is only, you know, not only it's filling that bucket, but it's perforating it. So the next time you need a little bit more and a little bit more, which is what we discussed before we hit record, whatever the addiction is, it's always, you know, you always need that 1% the next time to get that same exact feedback. And before you know it, you know, now you're just, you're just bleeding out fluid and God forbid that 
that bucket gets low enough, now you're looking at you know overdose, suicide ideation, etc. So I like that analogy to to kind of cover the fact that yes, there are holes in the bucket, but there is a way. There are ways of healing it, you know. But it's going to take that hard decision to reach for headspace instead of whiskey on that particular day. Love that, man. Love that analogy. So uh, thank you for that. And no problem. Thank you for this conversation. Incredibly insightful, inspiring. And thank you for the work you've done and continue to do. And for anyone here who would like to reach out to you, potentially work with you, I know you've got a book out there, One More Light. You're also going to be working on a new book as well, which I'm excited about already. So you can tell us a little bit about that and let us know where we can reach out to you and find you. And obviously, as well, very importantly, without forgetting to mention, listen to your brilliant podcast as well, Behind the Shield. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Behind the Shield is the name of the podcast. You can find best social media is Behind the Shield 911 on Instagram. It's the only one I find that doesn't hide everything I do and, you know, kind of put stuff out there. Yeah, the first book is One More Light, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter. Um, and the second book, well, the title will be announced probably, I'm hoping, I turn 50 on March 29th, so I'm hoping I at least get the first draft finished by then so I can feel somewhat accomplished and I uh, turn half a century. Um, but yeah, and then Behind the Shield podcast, um, there are two that I'm aware of, at least that, that were there when I started. One is... Uh, like a Dungeons Dragons gaming podcast, they were there first, so I always give them give them kudos. And then mine is a little diamond, first responder and military and everyone else podcast, you know. And we've got guests ranging from Wim Hof to Hoist Gracie to Jocko to John Travolta. I mean, all kinds of different people on there. So, and I'd love to get you on, Gavin, as well. So we'll have to make that work. Let's line it up, man. Yeah, it would be a, an honor. Thank you so much. So, and for now, man, as I said. Keep doing the great work you do. Stay strong, and yeah, thank you. So, thank you again for for this. It's it's been incredibly inspirational for myself personally, and I'm sure for everyone listening to this. So, thank you, my man. Thank you, brother. <laughs>